You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do the workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is his has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust. All return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, 
I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome. My name is Ralph, I'm uh, one of the leaders here at City, and it's my job to take you through uh, those two chapters this afternoon. So let's bow our heads and let us pray together. Father God, thank you that your word speaks to us today. It speaks words we desperately need to hear and holds out hope we desperately need to receive. So we pray, Lord, speak to us now by your word and spirit. Amen. Well, let me ask you, what do you do when things go wrong in life? When a relationship breaks down or when you don't get the grades you were hoping to get in an exam or um, when you feel like you have no friends or, or when you feel like life is just too tough, too hard, you can't keep going. Are you one of those people who, who always look back? Oh, things were so much better, so much better in my previous job. Everything was far, far easier before I moved to Manchester. And things were much better before I came here to City Church. 
Or, or do you find yourself going the other way, looking forwards and just wishing your life away? I've just got to make it through, make it through to the next holiday, make it through to the next relationship, the, the, the next job, the, the next move. Well, today we're going to be thinking about how we respond when life unravels. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's written by a man called Quoleth, who introduces himself back in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, now that, that name, Quoleth, it simply means the, the leader of the assembly, the, the teacher. And this teacher wants to teach us about life under the sun what it looks like. And by under the sun, the teacher is speaking about a life lived without a personal relationship with God. And the teacher is clear that such a life is meaningless. Hevel is the word he uses. It means life is like a snowflake. We can relate to this from earlier in the week. A snowflake, you take in your hand, but the moment it hits your hand, the heat from your hand causes it to melt and vanish away in an instant. That's what life lived under the sun, life lived without reference to God, is like. And today we're looking at these two chapters. It's quite a large section of the book, and the teacher goes through lots of different themes. But the thing that unites the themes together is this idea of how we handle life when things fall apart. Let me be honest, when when I've been preparing this this week, I found these chapters immensely challenging. So so fasten your seatbelts. There are five things, five things that the teacher wants us to recognize, wants us to realize when hard times hit. First up, He says, recognize the time. Uh, Look at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. It it looks quite familiar, doesn't it? You might think, I've seen this before. Uh, Perhaps it's because you've been doing your homework and you've been reading ahead in the book of Ecclesiastes, or maybe it's that you like your 1960s music and can remember back to the classic by the birds which riffed off these verses. Turn, turn, turn. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season Turn, turn, turn. Do you remember that? None of you remember that because you weren't around in 1965, but you may have heard it, okay? (laughs) Now, the teacher's poem uses the word time no less than 28 times, over 14 lines, and each line has a parallel couplet. So we read, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to weep and a time to laugh. The the point of the poem is there in verse 1. There is a time for everything. There is a season for every activity. We, We know that to be true from our own experience, don't we? I remember when I bought a DVD player just after Blu-rays had been released. That that was not the time, that was not the season to be buying a DVD player. I remember the time that I wasted an hour washing my car on a Saturday morning, only for it to tip down with rain on Saturday afternoon and to be utterly filthy by Sunday morning. We know that there is a time and a season for things. And yet, all too often, we stubbornly resist 
that fact. What do I mean? Well, remember that each line at the start of chapter 3 is a couplet. Just scan down that list and think, are you good with both sides of the couplet? Are you really? Take the first line. There is a time to be born and a time to die. Now, we all know that there is a time to be born because everyone sitting here today has had that time to be born. We didn't have much of a say in it, but there was a time. Mine was just before 4 p.m. on Tuesday, the 18th of April, 1978. But there will also be a time for me to die, guaranteed, unless Jesus returns first. Do I accept that? Am I good with that? Well, take verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now, that probably refers to there being a time for war and a time for peace, but it also applies in relation to our loved ones too. Several years ago, one of the leaders at my my previous church where I was assistant pastor, he he was the same age as me and he was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, They operated on him and the chemo seemed to be working. And and that was a time to heal. But the cancer came back and there was nothing the doctors could do. Are we okay with that? Or, Or look at the next line. There is a time to tear down and a time to build up. Now, now many of us, instinctively, we are builders. We want to start new things. We want to see things grow and flourish. But sometimes projects fail. Sometimes projects are good for a season, but they need to come to an end. Are we good with that? Yes, I am. Or, Or the next line, the next line. Some of us, some of us instinctively, we are laughter people. We live for the good times in life when we can be happy and carefree, when we're dancing, we're enjoying a good life, and we cannot handle a time of weeping. It makes us feel like life's just not worth living. But then there are some of us who are the other way around. We need to be sad. We can't cope with happiness. We don't know how to be happy. And so we, we deliberately put ourselves in relationships and situations where the people around us need us to mourn with them. We depend upon them to enable us to be sad. Or, or, or verse 6. A time to search and a time to give up. Some of us, we just cannot let go. We, we cannot give up. We cannot accept failure. I think that's what's described in the rather enigmatic verses at the end of chapter 4. There in verses 13 to 16, we read about an old foolish king who gets replaced by a bright young king. It's a kind of rags to riches story. And the people loved him at first. But eventually, verse 16 the tide turns and his popularity rating plummets. Now what happens? What happens 
if you accept only one half of the couplets? Two things, I think. First up, you will think that God hates you. You will. If we can only live in times of healing, of of laughter, of searching, we'll assume that if we get sick or sad or, or we fail, then that must mean that God has it in for us, that he doesn't love us. Secondly, though, you'll also try to be God. What do I mean? Well, ever since I was young, I have struggled with hypochondria, fear of getting ill. Now, it's not that death terrifies me, because I think I got my theology right. I I know that to live is Christ and to die is gain, but I desperately don't want to be in that time of sickness. And, And so my hypochondria is my way of trying to control my time. To, to spot the time of sickness before it happens, to do everything I can to avoid ever entering that time of sickness. It's why some of us exercise all the time. It's why some of you eat kale every single day, because you don't want those times of sickness. We're, we're trying to control our times. We're trying to live in perpetual health. You know, refusal to accept the times is is also why some of us never stay in the same job for more than a couple of years. It's why some of us bounce from church to church, never quite content. But when the hard times hit, when things become uncomfortable, when it's a time to tear, we try to move ourselves into a time to mend. We try to take control of our lives, changing our circumstances, thinking, I can be in the time I want if only, if only I move here. Recognize and accept the time, the teacher says. Secondly, recognize the sovereign God. That's verses 9 to 14. You see, there's a risk in what I've just said. You can hear it and you think, well, well, what the teacher is telling me is that I just need to grin and bear it. C'est la vie, que sera, sera, stuff happens. Now, that's both a very, very modern way of looking at the world, but it's also a very ancient way of looking at the world. The ancient Greeks had a name for it. They called it Stoicism. The Stoics were pantheists. They they believed that God was identical with creation, but didn't get personally involved in people's lives. It's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes calls living life under the sun. And, And so the Stoics, they just stoically accepted life as it is. You know, it's the the army sergeant who goes down in a hail of bullets. It's the, the prisoner who spits in his executioner's face. You're not getting to me. You can't do anything to impact my emotions. Stuff happens, and I'm all right with it. Now, that is not what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is proposing. And it's not healthy either. You see, Stoicism denies our natural response when sad things happen. 
When we get dumped, Stoicism says, suck it up. When we get cancer, Stoicism says, just accept it. The problem is that that simply isn't the way that we're wired as human beings. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 3. God has laid a burden on our hearts. We have eternity in our hearts, verse 11. That, that means that we feel, we, we, we grieve, we, we long, we, we hope for more. Those are distinctively human desires. And to deny them as Stoicism does, well, it dehumanizes us. So, so the answer when hard times hit isn't simply to grin and bear it. Now, the answer is there in verse 14. To know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. You see, life is not a game of blind chance. God is in complete control. He sees everything, and he is all-powerful. Which means that life, the times, they only make sense from his perspective. <laughs> Several years back, I went to Dubai uh, to go and visit some, some church pastors and some church planters there. It was fascinating meeting so many different people and seeing the city. And just off the coast of Dubai, there's a set of man-made islands. And you look at them and they just look like random floating pieces in the Gulf. But when you go up to, to, to the viewing deck on the Burj Khalifa, you can look down on those islands and you suddenly see what they are. From height, you see that they are a map of the world. You have to go up in order to see down and make sense of the world. And that's what's going on here. The same is true for our times. From our perspective, we often just can't make sense of it. We don't understand how it all fits together, how it works, how it is good. But from God's perspective, it all fits together perfectly. And so, verse 14, the times should make us fear. Or, or, or more literally, it should make us stand in awe of God. Listen to how one commentator puts it. He says, God's times make us aware of our helplessness. We cannot control the times. God's times makes us aware of our total dependence on God. We do not even know the times. Awareness of our helplessness and dependence make us stand in awe of God. You see, the God who sees the times, he is the God who brought victory out of seeming defeat as his son was nailed to the cross. He is the God who brought eternal life out of eternal death as his son breathed his last he is the God who brought unity out of separation as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Recognize the sovereign God and stand in awe. Which means thirdly, 
that we need to recognize our lot. In verses 18 to 20, the teacher plays out what life lived under the sun, as if everything is pure chance, what a life like that looks like. And he shows us it leaves you depressed. It leaves you thinking that you're no different to the animals, that that everything is meaningless, verse 19. The, The right approach is there in verse 22. To get on with life, recognizing that our times are our lot. Now, what does the teacher mean by saying the times are our lot? We need to understand the Near Eastern culture in ancient times. You see, it's talking about a practice of the, the drawing of lots. You've heard about it, the, the drawing of straws. You know, whoever gets the short straw is the one who has to do the washing up or take out the rubbish. Yeah, you come across that. Now, when we hear about drawing straws, drawing lots, we tend to think about it as just being a kind of pure chance, like tossing a coin. But in ancient Near Eastern thought, it is God who directs the lot. He controls who gets what. And importantly, that is what the teacher is saying here. My parents got divorced when I was in my early 20s, and it was incredibly painful. And at the time, I could see absolutely no purpose for it, none at all. All I experienced was just deep, gnawing pain. But it was my lot. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the reason my parents' marriage broke down was because God had purposes for me in it. There were lots of reasons why their marriage broke down. But God did have purposes for me in it. He had a lot for me in it. And looking back, I can see that. Some of you here this afternoon, you are going through really difficult relationships right now. With your spouse. With your parents with an estranged friend. Some of you, you're stuck in really, really hard work situations. You wish you were doing something else, something you actually enjoyed, but you know you have to keep doing the job you're doing because that's what brings in an income. Well, have you recognized that that is your lot right now? And God has good purposes for you in it. And one day... One day you know your lot is going to be to die. It will be. No amount of exercise, no amount of healthy eating, no amount of avoiding taking flights or avoiding bungee jumping is going to stop that. One day your lot will be to die. Will you be ready for it? My friends, for for many of us, for for most of us here this afternoon, the time God has allotted for you to die has the potential to be the most fruitful time of your life. You will have unparalleled evangelistic opportunities as people you love come to visit you and listen to whatever you have to say. It will be the best. It will be the very best time in your life to show your family, to show those closest to you what really matters to you in your life. 
And you know, it will be the time that God deepens your relationship with him and your dependence upon him. If only you'll let him do that. If only you recognize that it is your lot from a sovereign God. But there is a problem, isn't there? Which brings us to our fourth point today. On the face of it, life sometimes just looks incredibly unfair, doesn't it? Look at the start of chapter four. As we look around the world, all we see is oppression. The the oppressed weep with no one to comfort them, while the oppressors just get richer and richer. Good people get sick and die, while wicked people just seem to live long, flourishing lives. How is that fair? It's so bad that the teacher suggests, verse 2, that it would be better to be dead, or, or even better not to be born at all, than to see what's going on. It's the same thought he expressed back in chapter 3, verse 16. In the very place where justice ought to be done, in the courthouse, wickedness prevails. Maybe that's why you're struggling to believe in God today. How can there be a good God when the world is so full of suffering and oppression and cruelty and injustice and no one ever seems to be held to account for it? It's a good question to ask. But, you know, atheism doesn't actually provide an answer for it. I mean, atheism, it it just sends you back to the stoic approach to life. It says, don't look for meaning, don't look for justice in life, because it's just not there. In fact, your outrage at injustice and oppression is not even real. There's no such thing as good and evil. There is no such thing as just and unjust. There just is. You and I were just caught up in a cosmic game of survival of the fittest, and you better join the game before it's too late, says atheism. That's not very satisfying, is it? And we need to realize, as the teacher reminds us, that injustice will not continue forever. Yes, we'll pass through times of injustice, but... Look at verse 17. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Recognize recognize that justice is coming the teacher says. Justice is coming for the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. Justice is coming for the Tutsis killed by the Hutus. Justice is coming for the black South Africans oppressed under apartheid. Justice is coming for you against those who've wronged you, who've hurt you, who've done unspeakable things to you. That that is one of the reasons why we're able to endure the times of weeping and mourning, of killing and tearing down, of war and hate, because we know that justice is coming. Jesus has promised that he will return, and when he comes again, he will come to judge. You know, if we don't recognize that, if we don't accept that, we will constantly be wanting to take matters into our own hands. We'll constantly be wanting to control the times. Make those who've wronged us pay. 
Sometimes we'll try to do that in, in direct, obvious ways by trying to seek revenge. But other times we'll do it much more subtly. We might even not realize that we're doing it. But we'll be harboring bitterness in our hearts. We'll always be assuming the worst of that other person. We'll be rooting against them in our hearts, hoping they get their comeuppance. It's ugly. It's unjust. It is trying to be God rather than to trust God, who has promised that he himself will come to judge at the time for judgment. But I guess that poses a really important question. Do you really want that time of judgment? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for his judgment, not yours? Because the Bible makes clear that all of us have rebelled against God. We've all lived as if God didn't exist. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Sure, we've done that in lots of different ways, but we've all done it. Which means that the time of judgment is both good news, but also terrifying news. Which brings us to our final point today. Recognize that God has come in time. Uh, verses four to six describe the motive that often drives people who work really, really hard. They, they do it out of envy of others. We climb the greasy pole in order to push others down. We chase after promotion. We move jobs to get a pay rise simply because we're engaged in a grand comparison game. And it leaves us feeling utterly alone. Which leads into verse 8. The picture in eight, verse 8 is an aging millionaire. He, he's built up his business empire. He, he owns his flat in London, his, his mansion in the shires, his beach house on the Med. He's got a fleet of cars, a cellar full of the, the finest French vintage. But he's all alone. And all he has amassed will die with him. That's contrasted with verses 9 to 12. We can survive the times, we can survive the seasons of life when we don't face them alone. Though one may be overpowered, verse 12, two can defend themselves. A cord of three stands is not quickly broken. Now, I suspect some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, yep, yeah, I've heard this one before. I've heard this. this. I've heard this at weddings. This is why it is better to be married than to be single. The court, it's a classic wedding text. It's about being good to be married. But I'm single and I don't see that changing anytime soon. So how's this supposed to help me? Well, don't be so quick. These verses, they can be applied to marriage for sure. Verses 10 to 11, they almost certainly have a friend in mind, not, not a spouse. And notice the third strand in verse 12. I think the teacher is pointing us here to God. You see, this is where Christianity is really different from every other religion and every other worldview. You see, the God of other religions, they always stand outside of time. 
That they always stand remote from what's going on in their creation. They always stand in a place of safety. The God of the Bible, Jesus, entered our time. He experienced a time to be born as he was laid in a manger in Bethlehem. And he experienced a time to die as he was nailed to a cruel Roman cross. That is why the fact that Jesus is coming to judge is good news for you if you've turned and put your trust in Jesus today. Jesus has already taken your punishment on himself. You're forgiven. You are in the right with God. Have you trusted in him for that? And Jesus has experienced what it's like to mourn, to weep, to be torn. He came and lived in our time. The American pastor Tim Keller tells a story of when he was receiving treatment many years ago. And as part of that treatment, he had to go for regular x-rays in the hospital. And it was a really uncomfortable procedure on his abdomen. And the x-ray technician, he was a very kind of -of matter-of-fact sort of guy who had an abrupt bedside manner. So he'd get Keller on the table and then he'd push him and he'd prod him, he'd, he'd move him around and show no concern for how Keller was feeling. But then one time, Keller went back, and the technician was completely different. He was so gentle, so nice, so kind, so considerate. And so Tim asked him, what's happened? Where's your old bedside manner gone? And the technician said, I got sick, and I was on the table. That, that, my friends, is what will enable you to cope when your life unravels. When we feel like we can't go on with the lot that we've been given. We don't try to take control. We don't insist on being comfortable with the time that we're in. No, we look to the third strand. Our God who got on the table, who who entered our times, experienced life and death, planting and uprooting, laughter and weeping, love and hate. Our God has promised that he will never leave nor forsake us. And he has promised that one day, in a time to come, he will return and make all things new and he will stoop down and he will wipe every tear from your eye. That is how we keep going in this life, in this season and the next. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the God who entered our times. Thank you that you've experienced what it is to laugh and what it is to weep. Thank you, you've experienced what it is to be born and to die. Thank you, you've experienced what it is to build and for life to unravel. We pray, Lord, that that when hard times hit, we won't try to take control, but that we will look to you, the one who holds time in his hands, the one who is sovereign and good, the one who has promised that he will fulfill his good and perfect purposes in us. 
We pray that we would see this, that we would grasp you and embrace you and all you are for us and that we would know our hope in that. Amen.